Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Roscoff. I am your host, and I am coming to you from the ruins of Greenwich Village, where Yesterday, four million people descended to celebrate Pride Day, and it was like the Day of the Locust. It was one of the most remarkable concentrations of people I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Glad for all the Pride, also glad they've all gone home to continue celebrating wherever they lived. Uh, Joining us today on this episode of Deep State Radio, we have... um, Uh, David Sanger of the New York Times. Hi, David. Hey there, David. Uh, We have uh, Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. Hi, Evelyn. Hello, David. Hello. In a recent first for us, we have Rosa Brooks stationary, not in a moving vehicle. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. Enjoy Uh, it while you can. I really... (laughs) Really overwhelmed by all of this. Um, David, of course. Rosa gave the Georgetown chauffeur a day off. Yeah, (laughs) right. I know. I keep him really busy. (laughs) Yeah, he seems to just drive up and down I 95. In any event, um, uh, David, um, uh, I I got the impression. Were were you on the trip with the president to Asia or? I, I was not. I was not. I was. I was here, um, uh, hanging out in the swamp. Uh, but you were reporting busily, and of course, the president made some news by going to North Korea and um, meeting his little uh, bromance buddy uh, Kim Jong Un, and crossing over into North Korea for um, uh, the first time for an American president. Now, I, I have to say. I was a little surprised, David, because I have heard since then a number of credible sort of Washington commentators going, well, this could be very meaningful. Um, and yet it looked to me kind of like a photo op. And uh, indeed, the, the, the stories that came out of The New York Times even hinted at the idea that perhaps the White House was not only stepping away from denuclearization as a goal, but stepping towards the idea of a freeze, which of course would be different from the kind of freeze that existed during Clinton days when there were no nukes, or even during Bush days when they only got tested a nuke in 2006, or at least announced a test in 2006. So this would actually lock them in as a fairly substantial nuclear power. Um, which doesn't seem like a terribly big win for me. Um, uh, you guys, of course, then immediately got attacked by John Bolton. Um, and so I'm wondering, uh, 
you know, what, what, what your take is on all of this. Uh, well, first, the, the step into North Korea is notable, as you say, because no president had stepped into North Korea before. Usually when presidents go to the DMZ, it's to grab a pair of uh, binoculars and uh, try to put on as um, tough a visage as you can as you stare into enemy territory. Um, the president instead tweeted out an invitation 24 hours in advance for Kim Jong-un, uh, his great buddy, to come down and meet him. And Kim Jong-un did exactly that. And why did Mr. Kim do it? Because he's recognized by now that while the president says he wants a deal, what he's really interested in, first and foremost, is the optics of doing some firsts, meeting Kim Jong-un, which I've said before and say to this day, I think is a good thing because Kim's the only one who can make a decision on the nuclear program, um, uh, showing his friendliness by stepping into North Korean territory, which I'm sure had the Secret Service a little bit worried. Um, uh, and so that was all fine, but we have to remember that we are now, um, more than 12 months after the initial Singapore summit where he and Kim met for the first time. And in that interim time, they have not gotten an inventory, which was the first step they wanted to get to of nuclear materials. They haven't gotten a single inspector in, they haven't gotten any nuclear, uh, materials, uh, uh eliminated. And what my colleague Michael Crowley and I uh, reported in this morning's Times, which you um, alluded to, was that there is now discussion inside the administration about trying to do this in phases, not giving up on denuclearization, because no administration would ever say that you're giving up on that, but taking a first step of a nuclear freeze, which would essentially be to try to build on Kim Jong-un's proposal in Hanoi. And not to go into it in too much detail, but you'll remember that in Hanoi, Kim had uh, proposed that they close down Yongbyon, the sort of decrepit, leaky old nuclear site that's the main production site for both plutonium and much of, but not all, of Iran's uranium. And the U.S. rejected it because they know that there are some production sites outside of Yongbyon. So the current idea, as we reported, uh, and as the administration half denied, uh, is to see if they could come up with a way of expanding the definition of the Yongbyon nuclear site to embrace most of the other production sites. That wouldn't get rid of any weapons, that wouldn't get rid of any missiles, but it would stop the problem from getting worse. Well, on one condition, of course, which is that the North Koreans actually stuck to the agreement. Um, which is something they haven't done in the past, isn't that? They have. Yeah. They they broke the 1994 agreement with President Clinton, but that did buy a number of years of uh, stopping plutonium from being produced. The difference from the Clinton era, David, of course, is at the time the North Koreans didn't have any nuclear weapons. Now they have 20 to 60, depending on whose estimates you believe. Um, they broke an agreement again at the end of the Bush administration. You'll remember that. President Bush got them to dismantle a major reactor, blow up the um, uh, the uh, cooling, cooling tower. tower on CNN. Yeah, that was a good dramatic moment. But they then later rebuilt the reactor and rebuilt the cooling tower, and they got back into production. So the, the record here is not fabulous. That's not President Trump's fault, uh, but uh, it does make you wonder uh, what happens if the president simply does an interim agreement and declares victory and walks off the field? Well, yeah, Evelyn, I mean, you know, it does seem to put us in the situation where 
the Trump administration has com seems to have stepped back from their goal of verifiable um, denuclearization. Um, and were they to pursue the route that David's talking about, uh, not only would it lock North Korea in as a nuclear power with the ability to threaten South Korea, U.S. troops, and Japan, but it also would be an agreement between North Koreans who have never not broken a nuclear deal and the United States that <laughs> broke its last nuclear deal. Um, right. Which put it under some shadow of a doubt, no? You're such a cynic, David. Uh, <sighs> yeah, I mean, look, the, the whole thing is just... I don't even know what to say because it's tragic. You know, now we look like we're creeping back towards the agreed framework, as David outlined. You know, I've been to Yangbyan. It kind of makes me, you know, when I was watching the Chernobyl series, it made me think of Yangbyan, you know, where we only had like paper suits on to protect us. Uh, it's an old facility. You're, and you're wondering why experts, Evelyn always has that healthy glow around her. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and most experts don't think that it's the only facility they have, which is why they're, you know, plenty happy to, you know, offer that one up for closure. Um, and of course, they have a lot of materials, as David said, 20 to 60 materials for about 20 to 60 weapons. Plus, over the last year, while we've been having all these great television friendly, you know, meetings between our leader and the North Korean leader, uh, they've continued to enrich and reprocess. So neither of the two uranium or plutonium-based nuclear programs have stopped. The only thing they've stopped, which is significant, is doing any testing of, of weapons, and they haven't fired a, an intercontinental ballistic missile. But, you know, again, they haven't frozen their, their nuclear program. I think it would be a great first step. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you have to start somewhere and this, our president said it's all or nothing. You know, he seems to take the same approach with Iran. And, and the North Koreans, most notably in the last meeting in Vietnam, said, no, we're not going to, you know, do a quick denuclearization. The North Koreans have always wanted a step-by-step, -step, you know, we do one thing, you do one thing. But, of course, they've always taken advantage of that. The minute they get something in one of the, right after they did something, they don't complete their next step. So we have that issue with them all the time. We have no better option but to try. But again, this also differs from the Iran situation because we've released the maximum pressure on North Korea. So you'd have to ratchet up the pressure first and get Russia and China to agree to do that, ratchet the pressure up on North Korea in order to get Kim Jong-un to really abide by any kind of agreement, including a freeze. Hey, David, could I take a brief moment to just disagree at my risk with one thing that my friend Evelyn said? Because I think I agree with everything she said <laughs> except one line, which was that Trump himself has taken a maximalist position here. John Bolton has taken a maximalist position. And he repeated right, it okay. in his tweet today. Uh -huh. But Trump himself, in an in a interview he gave back in April, actually opened the door to taking a step-by-step -step approach which was pretty amusing because his staff had all been briefing us. No, 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 we're not doing step by step. It's all or nothing. So, okay, point taken. Um, yeah, by the way, Evelyn's contract calls for her only to be agreed, disagreed with once per quarter. So that's and it. And now I've blown it. <laughs> that's the it. Entire, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Wait, I have that's no contract. Maybe I need yeah. a contract. Yeah, no, well, it's the, it's a, um, uh, yeah, we'll get that to you. Anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> 
Um, uh, uh, Rosa, you, you accused me of being cynical about this, so you know I don't want to disappoint you. You go it a step further, uh, and we, we get ourselves in the situation where um, Trump goes in, and presumably the North Koreans say, why don't we just stop right here and get something for it? Uh, and the Iranians have got to be looking at this going, hey, wait a minute. This is a, yeah. big, this is a big opportunity for us. If uh, I were the Iranians, of course, I would be extending an immediate invitation for Donald Trump to visit Tehran. They should wine him and dine him. They should tell him he's wonderful. They should give him tours of centrifuges and so forth, and and they should suggest that maybe the the Trump brand could be put, you know, somewhere visible right outside the uh, uh, facility at Natanz, maybe a giant Trump sign, and nice. that will it will all work out. I mean, I because I do think that, you know, to say the least, as as Evelyn and David have have both said, the United States is, is sending some pretty damn mixed messages to both North Korea and Iran, each of which are clearly looking over their shoulder at one another. Um, you know, we're simultaneously sending, mostly via John Bolton, et cetera, these incredibly hostile, bellicose messages. And then we're also sending the, yeah, whatever, we don't really care what you do, you know, just just give us some photo ops and who cares anyway. Uh, make us look good message. Um, so, you know, <laughs> right. If I were the Iranians, I would, I would think a complete about face is warranted uh, in which, in which uh, they focus on flattery and obsequiousness towards Trump. Uh, and all is always forgiven for, from Donald Trump. And you do that's, that. That's a really good idea, David. You know, Trump Natanz has a kind of a ring to it. Um, it it's, it sort of echoes the Israeli um, announcement of the establishment of Trump Heights, a new new community in the Golan Heights that they're planning on building, not to mention the Trump subway station they're building not too far from the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, and they seem to be revealing, you know, that the best position to possibly be in with um, Trump, who uh, ran on, on being a master dealmaker, is actually to be negotiating with him. Because also this week, on another set of stories you found, it did seem like the United States was taking a step back on the Huawei issue, um, and uh, that, that perhaps that was just uh, you know thrown up as an impediment um, uh, in order to um, get some leverage with the Chinese, and that Trump now really wants to deal with the Chinese. And, seems to be willing to set it aside. And if you look at the other negotiations of this administration, um, uh, it, it, it really doesn't seem like the United States is getting, you know, a great new NAFTA or something to replace TPP or um, we'll see where we end up with China, but probably not ending up with the deals here uh, or, you know, any in any of these cases. Uh, the, so the, the, the negotiating strategy of the U.S. is, talk tough and fold. Uh, well, you could argue that. Well, see, on your first point, look, one thing they, the Iranians have in common interest with Donald Trump is they both know how to do really great rallies. Now, the Iranians yell, yell death to America and them, and the Trump rallies yell in support of President Trump. But you got to you got to think that, that um, you know, they would have an art form. That, or that's right. So, um, right. Uh, so they've, they've got a little common ground. Now, more seriously, um, 
couple of dynamics underway here. The Iranians are clearly watching what happens with the North Koreans quite closely and vice versa. Um, these are completely different situations because the North Koreans have nuclear weapons right now and the Iranians don't. Uh, the Iranians need to get leverage and their only way to get leverage is to make the kind of announcements that they uh, made uh, on Monday that they are uh, now breaching the limit on the size of their stockpile. And uh, the foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, uh, the American-educated uh, foreign minister who negotiated the deal, said the next limit to be broken, probably by next weekend, will be upping the purification of the uranium, the enrichment levels, uh, beyond what's allowed in the treaty. Now, all of these steps are reversible. But what they're trying to do is build up some leverage versus the Americans. And they're saying to the Europeans, hey, don't make us go back to 2013 or 2014. And you can make an argument, as the Europeans do, that President Trump pushed them to this point. Um, that takes you to the question uh, right now of how do you play Donald Trump? And I would say that Kim Jong-un's figured this out. You know, worry about the photo ops, not about giving up the nukes. The Iranians haven't figured it out yet. They're trying to, to simply split the Europeans away from the Americans. I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, the Chinese are doing a pretty good job of it. And I was very surprised by the back down on Huawei that you mentioned, because it basically undercuts the administration's argument that Huawei, the big Chinese telecom maker, is a national security threat and that all the allies have to go after them as strongly as the U.S. does. I think now the allies are going to say, well, wait a minute, how, how bad can this be? So um, they've all figured out the way the president does this. He ramps up a crisis, then he negotiates, and then he hopes that if he can resolve it, he can claim that he stops something from far worse happening. Well, let me, before I go uh, back to Evelyn and Rosa, I would like to ask you one more question, which hasn't really come up that much. In the event that you know, Began and then Pompeo or whoever is doing this, looks maybe, you know, Ivanka handles some upcoming stage of negotiations. Um, and we get to some kind of a freeze and a shutdown of one or more facilities. What are the North Koreans going to get? David? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought that was for Rosa. Um, the North Koreans, if they uh, manage to um, uh, do this freeze, the administration will argue it's a first step toward a bigger nuclear denuclearization. What the North Koreans will get is some form of sanctions relief. Now, the question is what form? They've got certain um, sanctions that they um, I feel are most onerous. And those are the ones that started at the end of the Obama administration in mid-2016 and have accelerated during the Trump time. And those are what's cutting off imported oil, things that are really crucial to the economy. What the administration would like to do, since the sanctions are their only leverage on North Korea, is to basically relieve the humanitarian uh, sanctions, allow more humanitarian aid, maybe let the South Koreans go in and restart their uh, joint manufacturing center in Kaesong, just over the north side of the, of the DMZ. So those would be relatively minor steps. I'm not sure Kim Jong-un's going to buy that deal. And I'm not sure that he thinks that a freeze would be worth it 
if you're only going to get modest sanctions relief? Um, uh, yeah, well, I think that's, uh, that, that's going to give them more leverage because as closer we get to the election, of course, the more Trump's going to want to have a victory. And that seems to be what's driving um, the, the China side of this. Evelyn, one thing we haven't heard too much about is how the South Koreans and the Japanese feel about this. Um, how, do, how do you think they're looking, looking at the prospect of essentially North Korea being welcomed into the fold of nuke-owning nations um, with the blessing of the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, look, if you're the South Korean president, you're incredibly nervous because he has really staked his his political future, you know, his legacy on getting some kind of real agreement with North Korea. I, I, you know, the South Korean people and certainly his opposition in South Korea, the opposition party is, is not going to be more conservative party, um, is not going to be appeased by this pomp and circumstance. I mean, they're going to want to see a real reduction in the threat posed by North Korea, conventional and nuclear. So, you know, President Moon Jae-in is in a tough position. He's, and, and he's basically, like the Japanese uh, prime minister, said, okay, I'm going to go along with President Trump because neither one of them has much of a choice. Um, so, so the South Korean uh, president will try hard to do what he can to put some meat on these bones. <laughs> um, and I mean, he is eager for rapprochement. You know, he's, a, he's similar to his predecessors in the past. So when we had the agreed framework, who had a sunshine policy and basically tried through trade and other inducements to get the North Korean regime to maybe, you know, moderate itself a bit. It, it didn't really work, but then again, the, the North Koreans broke out of the agreed framework and we weren't successful in putting them back in until towards the end of the Bush administration. Um, so, so that's South Korea. Japan is in a, in a tight bind, of course, because there's an ongoing threat. And for Prime Minister Abe, what he's part of his, his legacy is not just standing up for Japan and being more nationalistic as a Japanese leader, but one one aspect of that standing up for Japan and the Japanese is trying to get some answers out of the North Koreans about the remaining Japanese abductees who were taken mainly in the 80s from Japan, seized from Japan and taken prisoner and continue, we believe, at least some of them to remain alive um, in North Korea. So for, for President Abe, uh, he needs to see uh, Prime Minister Abe, he needs to see some progress on that, and there's been none. And then, of course, again, like his South Korean counterpart, progress on the real threat. Um, so these guys are kind of, um, their hands are a bit tied by, by us, or at least they've allowed their hands to be tied by us, unlike the Europeans in the Iranian context, where the Europeans are trying really hard to run a parallel process with the Iranians. Well, Rosa, I'm really searching for some real good news here. Um, the Osaka summit, according to uh, President Trump, went extremely well. He said it was very well run. Um, I gave a lot of props to President Abe. And he did get a lot of quality time with some great world leaders, uh, Vladimir Putin, who he, he spoke very highly of, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who said was doing a great job and that he was honored to meet with him, uh, Erdogan, with whom he said, 
that was fine if they bought Russian um, uh, missiles. We would be happy to still sell them F-35 aircraft. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, those guys, the likes of, of oh, it's Xi Jinping, of course, uh, and the likes of, you know, Brazil's Bolsonaro. Um, uh, so that's a love fest. He's meeting with world leaders. He's hobnobbing. He's a statesman. He's growing into the presidency, right? Uh, yeah. I, I, again, you know, I, I think, well, I was going to say that once again, Trump has shown us that he is who he is. I always think of that great quote from uh, former poet laureate Maya Angelou saying, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time or something to that effect. You know, this is the Donald Trump we have known and not loved for a long time. He he prefers autocrats to Democrats. He blusters around insulting our allies and cozying up to people who we should be very wary of. Um, uh, and, and nothing else is new. And, and then, then, of course, the, the thought that followed immediately after that uh, was, I think, the, the biggest challenge that we all face in the, the Trump, Trump era is we get, we do get cynical and we get when, you know, when something happens the first time that's outrageous that Trump does, we're all shocked and appalled and we're shocked and appalled the second time, the third time. And, and it's hard to maintain uh, that level of shock and dismay when it happens, you know, for the 37th time or whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, so, so yes, Trump is not growing into anything. He is he is continuing to be his inimitable, uh, appalling self. Uh, he's continuing to do enormous damage to the U.S.'s global reputation. Uh, he's doing enormous damage to the cause of human rights, uh, rule of law, and democracy worldwide by making it quite clear that his sympathies lie with repressive and autocratic author or author authoritarian regimes rather than with pro-democracy reformers or those who are standing up for human rights. Uh, and it's pretty darn depressing. Uh, and I, and I, I, I do struggle. I struggle constantly with how to, how to talk about this, how to think about this without just sort of the fatigue of, you know, Trump outrage syndrome it's so outrageous. It's exhausting. You know, how do we, I, I don't know how we make this sort of lie for people over and over and over again, you know, saying, Oh, this is not normal. This is not normal over and over again. Maybe we can't. Well, one thing that seems likely to happen is that David Sanger is likely to be tossed into a concentration camp on our border because the president two weeks ago accused David of um, treason. And then, you know, Mike, I mean, and then John Bolton today said that the story that he ran um, was n not only untrue, but that there should be consequences. And so, oh, David, he did actually say it was untrue. Time. He said it boxed the president in. Oh, it boxed. And that it was the first that he had heard of it, but he didn't say it was. It David, was. I thought that was very cheery of him. What yeah. are the odds of a nuclear strike on the New York Times building? And a very interesting question. And are you prepared for that? But he did say consequences, didn't he, David? Well, first of all, I want you to know that, you know, with Rosa on the show, there's a reason that Rosa has been urging me all this time to build a silo, right? And to get, get I have. going. I with, saw with, this coming. 
That's right. She did that. She, she, for years now, as Deep State Radio listeners will know, Rosa has been searching the real estate listings here for really good silos for us, including a, our, our major Deep State Radio underground um, survive any nuclear holocaust um, uh, broadcast center. Uh, but now you know why. Um, you know, I, what, what I found interesting to the re- and the reaction to our story was that uh, Steve Began, the, the uh, North Korean negotiator, said that uh, what was old in the story was um, accurate and what was new in the story was inaccurate. He wouldn't say what was old and what was new. Maybe they've been kicking these ideas around for longer than we know. Um, the president tweeted about North Korea this morning after the story had ran, run on our front page, and he reads the paper edition. And all he had was nice things to say about um, how well the summit went. You didn't see him um, disputing this. Uh, it was only John Bolton who did. And I just want to note that Mr. Bolton wasn't at the North Korea uh, meeting at the DMZ. Um, uh, Ivanka Trump was there. She sat in. Mr. Bolton was on an urgent trip to Mongolia, uh, where he uh, was carrying on the nation's business while the president was meeting the North Korean leader. And so um, that might explain a little bit about um, what's going on inside the administration as everybody jockeys over the question of, can you really make the North Koreans give everything up all at once as uh, Mr. Uh, Bolton argued for the Libyan model, sort of what the Libyans did when they turned in their their uh, nuclear equipment, or do you have to do this in some stages? And as Evelyn said before, I suspect they're going to have to do it in some stages. And the president himself in April said step-by-step step was going to be critical. Uh, so I think that most of the administrations coming around to that view, they're just not quite sure how to square that with their previously stated position. Um, well, look, I just hope you make it to next week um, and that you're not, you know, marched in some part of the July 4th parade uh, in chains in front of our, our king. Um, uh, oh, gosh. Well, they're going to bring all these they're going to bring all these tanks into town here now. Yeah. We, we understand. And they better and- not. The mayor already said we're going to have to pay extra to fix the roads. Well, all you know, all I can tell you is that. Um, the roads are going to be in such shape that David's going to have to like slow down on his Porsche, you know, as he tries to drive into the city uh, because it's going to take out the bottom. Actually, no, the new Porsches actually have a thing where the nose lifts uh, and, you know, a little over an inch to keep you from scraping the bottom. Oh, oh, that's good. I want one that turns into a tank. I think that would be really useful. Yeah. Well, yours is not, yours is not a bad um, well, David, I know you've got to go and head off to the Daily. Good luck with that. Um, Thank you. Trouble, and we'll talk to you next week uh, or the following week. Because actually, you know, the following week, we're going to celebrate our 200th episode. Oh, wow. Uh, and we're going to have to do, do something wow. suitable suitable for, with, with everybody uh, on that. We'll get back to you on that. But in any event, be well, David. Thank um, you. Um, Evelyn. Bye, David. Bye, 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 David. Um, Evelyn, in, in the remaining uh, 10, 15 minutes we've got here, let's touch upon a couple of other things. Uh, I've noted that you, uh, on past, have participated um, happily in uh, wargaming and other kinds of simulations. 
Um, and so here's a question that you might encounter in one of those that I'm really interested in. Because we have a negotiation going on with North Korea, we've got negotiations or some form of exchange going on with Iran, there's negotiations and trade going on with the Chinese, there's a looming threat of, uh, of, of issues uh, surrounding the auto industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but Donald Trump is clearly an aberration for American presidents and his views of the world. And it's possible that Donald Trump is not going to be president for more than a year and a half. Now, without getting too caught up in just how you'd feel about that outcome, how do you think that affects a negotiator who sees Trump either as an easy mark um, or as a pain in the neck? Well, you know, we, we already can see very publicly that the president sees this as a possibility that his negotiators are going to just try to wait him out. Why? Because he's come back to accusing Secretary Kerry wrongfully, by the way, from what I've learned, you know, not just knowing him, but also by talking to his team, his former, his former associates, you know, he's accused Secretary Kerry once again of going behind the back of the U.S. government, violating the Logan Act and, you know, giving all sorts of advice, I guess, or having discussions with the Iranian leadership. Um, that's because President Trump is probably very sensitive, again, to the likelihood that any of his negotiators would be saying, well, let me just wait till November or January. I mean, that's a long time to wait. But if you are uh, a counterpart, you might try it. And having these kinds of, you know, big television friendly, you know, photo ops, uh, if that's what keeps the president from turning up the pressure on you, allowing your allies to break the sanctions and provide you with the fuel and other things that you need. I'm thinking of North Korea here, but you know, you can, I mean, you can apply it to any leader. Uh, then you will continue, you know, doing whatever it is you have to do to keep the, this administration from doing, from making any new moves. And, and hoping for a better day. And by the way, you know, we've spoken about this a zillion times. I'm sure Rosa can jump in on this too. You know, our allies are doing the same thing. They're just holding their breath, crossing their fingers, hoping to death, you know, that, that they get an administration that's more conventional and more friendly towards the institutions that we all built together and to our values. Is it true you're planning an 18-month vacation, Rosa? <laughs> I this is starting tomorrow. <laughs> um, well, but but you know, this is a point. You know, everybody has got to start looking at this and thinking. You know, he may be a short timer, and you know, he's a little bit off his rocker, and you know, they don't want to negotiate with Ivanka and so forth. And you know, it it can't it can't have you know, that could an effect on, on some kinds of negotiations, but on others, you could well imagine that if the Chinese think he's a soft touch or North Koreans think he's a soft touch or, or whatever, they might, you know, push for a deal because they think they can get a better deal out of him. Sure. Absolutely. No, I, I, I think that everybody is still scratching their heads, both in this country and overseas, trying to figure out the psychology of Donald Trump um, and you know, our, our allies are just desperately closing their eyes and, and hoping, you know, clicking their heels together 
uh, and hoping that they can magically teleport themselves to 2021 with someone else in the White House. Uh, but our adversaries are are busily thinking, you know, what can we do? Uh, you know, our adversaries are thinking, what can we do? What can we get away with? Um, and they're getting away with a lot. It is, of course, ironic, as we've been discussing earlier, that the North Koreans and the Iranians are, are going to have made, you know, further progress on nuclear development under under Trump's uh, I don't want to say auspices, but you know what I mean. Um, um, you know, they're, if they can just keep John Bolton from, you know, nuking them, uh, they're going to come out of this ahead. So they're, they're playing this tricky game where they're, you know, they have to manage Trump's minions uh, who, who, who would be happy to take military action while trying to, you know, deal as much as they can in the world of Donald Trump who is both susceptible to flattery and who quite clearly does not want to get into a conflict. Uh, then meanwhile, people who are neither entirely our adversaries nor precisely our allies, the autocrats of the world are, are looking for ways that they can take advantage of Trump's fondness for them slash inattention uh, slash the legitimacy that his words and behavior may give them with their own publics. Um, so I, I, I think that we are, I'm not quite sure what the right metaphor here is. Um, but the big question, I think, for America, which will have enormous consequences beyond our borders as well, uh, and which will not be resolved until the next election, is going to be, you know, is this aberrational, a sort of last gasp of American craziness, a last gasp of, you know, white nationalists, uh, et cetera, and, but then it gets firmly repudiated by the majority of Americans, and we set about the what will be a quite difficult task of repairing the damage, um, but we we recover, or or is this a sign of of more to come uh, in the Trumpian direction? And you know we we won't know, uh, but this sure is the time for everybody to be thinking about that and focusing on getting out the vote. Um, yeah, no, there's 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 no question about that. One of the questions we come back to, Evelyn, though, with regard to all of this is is sort of the snapback you know like in the event that trump were to lose would this all just end up becoming a bad dream would we just go back into jcpoa plead our way back into tpp plead our way back into the paris accord um catch back up on our unpaid un dues um, uh, you know send a baguette and a bottle of champagne to our european allies and and or 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 a bratwurst and a jar of mustard, and <laughs> and and you know try to repair things, send a nasty note to Putin, um, and uh, and and sort of head back to square one, you know, uh, or 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 is is it going to be harder than that to undo all this? I mean. I think it's it's not going to be as simple as all of that. You know, we're not going to be able to erase the legacy of this administration because, you know, one time when the United States unilaterally breaks out of a an international agreement is a precedent. We're going to have to show that it was an aberration and we're going to have to regain trust on the part of our allies. It will matter whether the person that gets elected is someone that our allies already know and have some degree of trust in. Um, if not, then that will make it uh, more of an uphill 
climb for the next president, uh, for the next Democratic president. But I, I do know that the Europeans will gladly, at least the ones that are liberal Democrats, gladly uh, welcome, you know, a, a, a reversal and they will do everything in their power to make it permanent. So um, it won't be an automatic, uh, you know, it's uh, like if you, I don't know, lie to your spouse, you know, you have to kind of regain the trust and demonstrate you won't do it again, right? Um, I'm not saying cheating, but maybe it's like cheating, maybe it's that bad, I don't know. Um, so, you know, we, we do, we are gonna need to do some repair, but um, I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is that, you know, most of us understand the world hasn't stopped and some things in this next 18 months, if, if indeed the Europeans are able to, for example, set up an exchange system so that the Iranians can actually sell their oil and receive some kind of payment through this exchange system, that actually will really change the international order for, you know, to the detriment of the United States, because we will have real competitors then in terms of you know, uh, trade systems and it won't be, we, we will have seen another erosion in our dominance in economically and politically brought about by our own horrible diplomacy. You know, Rosa, um, Evelyn has come up with a suggestion that this should be treated like a marital spat. Um, Again, she says it's not like cheating on your spouse, but perhaps forgetting their birthday or something. And maybe what we should be thinking about right now is buying a nice present for all of our allies. Like, you know, <laughs> a big nice piece of exactly. nice piece of jewelry. Like a Tiffany Tiffany vase or something. Yes, they, yeah, something like that. And then it, then it would be fine. Yeah, something sort of classy that they could display in their, you know, palace or their parliamentary building. That's that yeah. would be a nice gesture, David, and I. I'm sure exactly. that will help. In fact, there could be. And Putin whole and Putin can look at it and know, you know, that we're back <laughs> with our old girlfriend. This is uh, uh, there was wife. a great book um, that somebody put together during the um, lost lamented reign of George W. Bush, um, and it was called Sorry World, and it it was, I think it came out in the first few years of Bush's administration, you know, 2004 or thereabouts, um, and it consisted entirely sort of a coffee table book of photographs of Americans all over the country and indeed all over the world. Some of them were in places like Antarctica holding up little signs that said, you know, sorry about that with pictures of George W. Bush's face. And, you know, <laughs> um, it was actually pretty funny. Um, of course, poor Barack Obama then got lambasted by the right for making a so-called apology tour. Um, but sometimes you got to apologize. And, and the least we can do is the Tiffany, the Tiffany vase. Yeah, no, I think Tiffany <laughs> apology vases handed out across mm -hmm. the world would be a nice thing. And people go in and say, uh, see this, this you know, would be in museums. This was the, this was the gesture America offered after the embarrassing four years of Donald Trump. Um, it's a, it's, you know, I think at the very least we should be polite about it. Uh, and I, so I think we're on to something here. Um, as I mentioned before, by the way, we're closing in on the 200th episode. We're going to do something special around that. We're going to get everybody together for one big episode, maybe a special guest or two. 
Uh, won't be next week. It'll be the following week. And on top of that, uh, we'll try to find a way to do something live. Uh, and those of you who are out there in deep state radio land who have good ideas about how we should celebrate our 200th episode, either with a live event or special kinds of swag or, um, uh, you know, get to spend time at David Sanger's farm in Vermont since he's no longer on the episode, uh, you know, please feel free um, to, uh, to tweet them at us uh, at Deep State Radio uh, or, you know, communicate them to us on some of the many forms that you've got of doing so. Uh, because we're looking for ways to do this and and to talk about how the next 100 episodes will be better and what we can do different. Um, and we've got some ideas. So um, go to the dsrnetwork.com, communicate with us, look at what we're doing, look at what's going on, look at the other podcasts. Um, uh, join us again a little later in the week. We've got a special July 4th episode and it is designed to be exactly the length of the president's speech uh, when he takes over um, July 4th and turns it into a celebration of, of his own cult of personality. Instead, you could listen to Deep State Radio, which is a very patriotic thing to do. Have a drink, listen to Deep State Radio, ignore the president. Um, and uh, and uh, we look forward to having you join us then. In the meantime, Thanks to David, who's off the daily right now, but he'll be back with us soon. And thanks to you, Evelyn, and thanks to you, uh, Rosa, for remaining in one place for a whole episode. Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll be back to you all very soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.